In England, you can be held liable for breaching copyright irrespective of how much care you took to avoid doing so. In this episode, the author of a new book on intellectual property accidents argues liability should attach only to those who have demonstrably been negligent. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. We don't tend to talk much about intellectual property on the Media Law Podcast, in no small part because neither I nor my usual co-host Paul Ragg have much in the way of expertise in that field. But it is an area of law often considered related to media law more generally, particularly in the context of infringements of copyright in, for example, musical works. Of course, Inadvertently copying a catchy riff or chord sequence is something every musician will recognize doing from time to time. Many of these infringements are not the result of deliberate plagiarism, but are accidental. Which raises the questions, how does intellectual property law deal with accidental infringements? And how ought it to do so? Those very questions are the subject of a recent book by my colleague at City Law School, Dr. Patrick Gould, entitled IP Accidents. And I'm delighted to have Patrick with me on the podcast today to discuss his work. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Now, whilst Patrick and I share some broad interests in tort theory, it's clear we need some more genuine expertise in the field of IP than I can provide to facilitate a rewarding discussion. So I'm equally delighted to welcome as our discussant today, Dr. Porna Mysore of the University of Cambridge. Hi, Porna. Hi, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful to have you both on. Um, So uh, I'll start and then I will try my very best to get out of the way of what I hope will be a fascinating discussion between you. Um, I'll start by asking Patrick if you could just... uh, Take a little while to tell us what your book is all about. Well, yeah, sure. Thanks, Tom. And really, your introduction has has already given the, the listener a great idea. Uh, it's about accidental infringement of intellectual property rights. And you've already given the, the, the listener a great example of what an accidental infringement of intellectual property rights in, involves. You've mentioned the musician who subconsciously copies a catchy riff a musician goes into the record the recording studio and unbeknownst to them there's this song which they heard 10 years ago and squirreled away in the back of their mind and in writing their new song they subconsciously and without intention copy from that old catchy song But that's one example. There's plenty of other examples as well. Think about the the documentary filmmaker who finds some old archive footage that they want to use in in their film, in their documentary. And unfortunately, there's no information about who created that film, when they created it, that that footage. and they're left with questions about, is it a protected by copyright? Is If it was originally protected by copyright, is it still protected by copyright? Who is the owner? Can I find them? Imagine the documentary filmmaker goes, okay, well, I can't find any information about this, the ownership status, and puts that footage into their film. Lo and behold, it turns out it is protected by copyright. And 
and uh, a copyright owner emerges from the woodwork and sues them for infringement, saying you owe us damages and we're going to stop you from distributing your film. Another accident. And although we're going to be talking about uh, media cases and, and, and uh, maybe with a focus on copyright, given the, the nature of the podcast, it's important to note this is relevant to a broad a swathe of innovation and creativity in society. Imagine the mobile phone producer who they've, they think they've invented a new type of Bluetooth or Wi-Fi technology to use in their, in their, their phone. And they, they start mass producing their phones only to discover that someone has actually already invented a very similar type of technology and that is subject to a patent. Again, this is an accidental infringement of, of the patent. These are the inadvertent, non-deliberate infringements. And the question that we need to ask is, what do you do about them? And in particular, who, if anyone, ought to be held responsible for these infringements? And we have three basic options. We could say the defendant is never liable. We could say, well, look, the, the musician, the documentary filmmaker, you didn't intend to infringe intellectual property. There was no blameworthiness there. This was not deliberate wrongdoing. So we will say, well, okay, it's just an accident. Everyone move on here. That's one option, no liability. Another option is what we call strict liability, which is we say the defendant is always liable. We say that, well, sorry, you have infringed the intellectual property right, and therefore you are liable for the consequences. You need to pay money and you will be stopped from um, your conducting your business until you, you uh, have negotiated a license. Or there's one final option, and this is an option which has been underexplored in the world of intellectual property, and that is negligence liability. That is, we say the defendant is liable only when they have behaved negligently. Were they careful? Were they careful or were they careless? If the defendant has behaved negligently, then we would attach liability. And in this book, after or introducing the problem of accidental infringement and what that is, I make the case that these types of infringement ought to be governed by a negligence regime. The defendant only should be liable for accidental infringements if they have failed to behave with all due care that you'd expect of a reasonable person. Something that uh, uh, listeners familiar with tort law will, will know from their, their or studies of general negligence law. Um, so I hope that provides a, a, an introduction to the book, and maybe we can get into some more uh, specific questions. Yes, just before we do, do I be right in thinking that at present, the intellectual property regime in the United Kingdom is based around a form of strict liability rather than that negligence-based idea you had? Yes, exactly. The current law, although there are um, certain nuances, which we may get into, the, the current law is strict liability. 
you are liable upon infringing. The musician who has accidentally copied a song in the past is liable per se, liable strictly. So in making the case for uh, negligence, I'm making a case for law reform. So in those cases, and we've seen a few recently um, with the musicians, for example, is that why those cases tend to turn on the question of whether or not there has even been infringement? Um, Whether the part of the track that's been copied is a substantial enough part of the track for, or, or is similar enough for it to even be regarded as an infringement, rather than turning on whether uh, the, the, the musician was careless. Yeah, that, that's right. So if you take a case like the recent Ed Sheeran litigation, um, that case comes down to copying. That's the, that's the fundamental uh, issue at, uh, being debated in that case. The litigation comes down to, well, did you, did you copy or not? Did you subconsciously or deliberately copy uh, was was the the question uh, and that litigation focuses on that issue and rightly so under the, the existing legal regime but i if uh we i would argue that there is a more significant issue or at least an issue that is as significant which is how much care did ed sheeran or whomever it may be take in trying to avoid infringing avoid copying the the prior song so just at a very broad level, why should we have a negligence-based regime rather than a strict liability one? Right. So the book gives a number of reasons. I'll give the two most important ones here. Firstly, it's more efficient. It's economically more efficient to have a negligence rule rather than a strict liability rule. And secondly, it's more fair. It's far fairer to individuals. So taking that first one, it's economically more efficient to adopt a negligence rule. It's actually helpful here to think briefly of of, um, an example that your listeners might be a bit more familiar with, just just accidents in other parts of life. You know, so just imagine you're driving your car on the motorways and you get into an accident. Now, Accidents are really bad for society. You know, they cause real harm, serious, lifelong harm, death and disability. They're bad. Now, one way we could stop that happening, which we would like to, is we could tell people, well, let's just stop driving. Everyone, put down your cars. Let, let's stop driving. It, it, it's going to cause harm to some people. Now, clearly, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> it's preposterous to suggest because that would do more harm than good right? What we do is we say, okay, drive, but drive sensibly. We drive with reasonable care. Or what we want to avoid is the case where the cure is worse than the illness. We, we don't want people to take excessive levels of precaution, like avoiding driving. We want them to drive carefully. And it's the same situation in intellectual property. Accidents, IP accidents, are really quite bad things. If I use someone else's work without authorization. I deprive them of a license fee. They don't get paid, right? And if we don't pay authors and inventors, well, they might create and invent less, and that's not a good thing. But 
that doesn't mean we sh should do everything to avoid that infringement. What we want is people to take reasonable, sensible measures, but not excessive measures to prevent care. So we would never dream of saying, look, Ed Sheeran, just stop producing music. Or, you know, if you think there's a possibility that you might infringe someone's song, just move on to the next one. Forget about that for, for the time being. That's excessive care. What we should do is say to people like Ed Sheeran, yeah, continue what you're doing. We like what you're doing. That's really good for society. But you have to behave reasonably. They take reasonable, not excessive measures. And that will result in a better society overall, where we ensure that people provide, take reasonable levels of care rather than excessive levels of care to prevent infringement. So it's more efficient in that respect. And the second point is it is simply fairer. For the same reasons that we uh, adopt a negligent regime in tort law, it is fairer to hold a defendant liable only when they have behaved negligently. And in part, this is because these accidents, they're not just caused by Ed Sheeran or musicians or defendants. These accidents come around because of the actions of very, of different parties. It takes two to tango, essentially. So uh, what we, what we uh, see is that owners, copyright owners, if they don't take steps to prevent infringement, for example, if they don't put their name on the work or if they don't try to publicly uh, register their copyright ownership claim, then it is easier for defendants to end up accidentally infringing. So these accidents are caused by both copyright owners and copyright users in, in about equal measure. Given that these accidents are caused by both owners and users, it's pretty unfair to hold users responsible for them. A negligence regime at least allows that, that burden to be shared a bit more fairly between them. It gives the defendant the opportunity to say, I took all the care that you could reasonably expect of me in these circumstances. So those are the two key reasons why a negligence regime is preferable to a strict liability regime. Thanks very much, Patrick. I think we all are on the same page as to where we are. Um, so I'll hand over to Porna. Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. Um, what a fascinating study, Patrick. Um, can I just begin picking your brain on what you started um, your, describing your book to be? You gave the very first example of um, having heard something some time ago, having that at the back of your mind subconsciously while you go into a studio room um, trying to put together some composition. Now, we are saying um, with, uh, you're, you're saying with your work that the person should exercise reasonable care in ensuring that they shouldn't um, infringe someone else's copyright. But if we are talking about subconscious copying, what kind of care can a person reasonably take? Well, I think it's reasonable to expect musicians to carry out a certain amount of due diligence before releasing their songs. And if you are 
it, if you are a, a, a musician such as Ed Sheeran, someone who has uh, a large amount of resources and record labels with significant amounts of resources, you would expect a certain amount of due diligence in terms of trying to prevent and copying. You give it to your record label and say, look, I don't think I've copied. Can you please check this? That's a good example. Interestingly, after the Ed Sheeran example, oh, uh, or the Ed Sheeran litigation, Sheeran has resorted to a strategy of being of meticulously documenting documenting his creativity process, as um, in trying to find trying to even with the use of cameras in the studio, so he can uh, he can um, identify where certain themes or certain ideas in his music come from and that's again it that's an example of care that's an example of him really trying to be thorough about understanding where the ideas and themes and various uh, bits of musical expression come from we can talk about whether that's particularly reasonable care or whether it's a bit much um, it, it might be a bit excessive but again it's a type of care that he's taking in order to prevent uh, producing a song and then starting to distribute that song commercially, which infringes someone else's work. Yeah, that segues into the next question, which is how does this standard of care differ between Ed Sheeran and someone who is much less known and has much less resources? Now, how do we peg um, as per um, the... Uh, uh, negligence law at the back of our mind um, is, 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 is the standard of care coming straight from the kind of standards, the flexible standards that come from negligence law, or are we talking about a more sort of uh, base fundamental standard, which everybody needs to uh, comply with, uh, no matter who they are? Right. I would say it's more of a fundamental base standard. It's what uh, negligence lawyers and tort lawyers would refer to as an objective standard. When we're assessing whether someone, uh, a defendant, has taken a reasonable level of care, or reasonable is defined objectively rather than reasonable for that individual person. And, um, and so it wouldn't really take into account the amount of wealth or one's capabilities. In tort law, for example, if you are a learner driver, you're still required to take a reasonable, objectively reasonable level of care. You can't say that, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was a learner driver. And I think that's the right standard in intellectual property. Um, the reason, the primary reason is, Mon, we can maybe elaborate uh, in, in a, a little bit, but primarily, is this flows from um, the economic underpinnings of intellectual property and of this type of analysis in tort law. What, we mat what matters to us is encouraging people to behave efficiently with their resources. And to do that, we need an objective evaluation of whether they took reasonable care. Now, we can modify the potentially that objective standard with the type of distributive concerns 
that you're mentioning, Purna, you know, was this person wealthier? Was this person uh, suffering from certain um, um, uh, challenges to meeting the, the, the objective standard of care? But I think those are add-ons to what is fundamentally an objective calculation. Yeah, um, moving on from here, uh, Patrick, you um, also very beautifully put this whole debate in the context um, of uh, historical developments. You talk about uh, in one of your chapters um, how copyright has expanded uh, over the years, uh, over the past 300 plus years, uh, in terms of expansion of subject matter, um, an expansion of number of years of protection being awarded um, and number of rights that are granted in relation to the copyright work as well. Um, and you note that um, in, in the background of um, industrial revolution, you have negligence liability becoming much more and more prominent, fault-based liability becoming more and more prominent and uh, on the flip side of it, and ironically, the inte intellectual property expansion leads to less and less fault-based liability. Um, can, you, um, can you elaborate a little bit on this um, historical quirk that you've observed? That's a great way to put it, a historical quirk. Yes, it's, it's the history of negligence law and tort law and the history of intellectual property have gone in somewhat opposite directions, as, as you mentioned. And the, the, the accidents problem has become far more pressing in the 21st century, in the information age. There, there has always been accidental infringements of intellectual property. They, we go back to the 19th century, there's plenty of cases where uh, individuals unintentionally, accidentally infringed the copyright of someone else. But at that point in history, there were measures in place which made accidental infringement a lot less likely. One simple, one simple uh, part of that is just the, the nature of our economies. There were far fewer copyrighted works and there were far fewer patented inventions at that time. And therefore, there was far less opportunity to accidentally infringe copyrighted works and patented inventions. In the 21st century, due to the information age and the, the amount of information we produce, we have this vast amount of material which is subject to intellectual property rights. And that obviously increases the scope and the potential for our, uh, any sort of infringement, including accidental. But on top of that, the law also had measures in place to really try to prevent infringement. So, for example, the US is the best example of this. The US has had two main strategies to, for keeping accidents to a very minimum. One, there was a mandatory registration requirement. So an author, if they wanted copyright protection, they had to register their work with, uh, with a government body which is publicly accessible. So if you're a defendant, you're someone who's, who's uh, using creative material, it was much easier to find out whether that creative material was subject to intellectual property rights in the first place because there's a publicly available register. And equally, there is a mandatory requirement that copyright information 
was put on the work. So you, you, many of the listeners will be familiar. You open up a book, you will probably see some copyright information in there. It will have that, that C in a little circle and the date of publication and all of that. Uh, that was mandatory at that time. And again, that information sharing made it much easier for individuals to avoid accidentally infringing because the information was more readily available. But in the 21st century, those sorts of safety valves or those safeguards have been gradually eroded. And largely that's a story about internationalization of copyright and how the, the legal regime has changed due to um, international conventions. But today we live in a, a society where you do not need to register your, your copyright with the government. There is no, uh, there, there is no mandatory a register of copyright, and it is equally the, not required for the author to place their their information or their name, copyright information, on on the work. So we we end up in this situation where the amount of copyrighted material in society is going up, and the um, opportunities that the the defendant, the user, has for finding out whether that material is protected and subject to legal rights is going down. And, and as a result, it becomes easier and easier to accidentally infringe copyright. Now, the other side of the story is the history of negligence. And, and as Purna mentioned, negligence, modern negligence law, uh, is deeply connected to the Industrial Revolution. In the Industrial Revolution, with the, there was an accident boom um, due to uh, increasing accidents on the, on the public roads. Uh, as John Baker says, men uh, undistinguished for their sobriety were getting in horse and carts and, and starting to run people over. And equally, there was uh, industrial accidents in, in factories and the like. And the, what the uh, what the what society settled on in the case of you know, those sorts of accidents was that a defendant should be liable for these accidental injuries only when they were negligent only if they behaved carelessly if someone accidentally but carelessly caused harm to another they would be on the hook if they behaved with the care that we'd expect from someone that reasonable standard of care we mentioned before then they'd be off the hook and that is what I'm arguing that intellectual property law must adopt in this new 21st century, where it is increasingly easy to accidentally infringe intellectual property rights. It seems to me that the, the, the direction in which the histories of negligence and the history of innovation were going were in different directions because the interests being protected were different. In negligence being personal injury and property damage and in uh, innovation such as copyright works or uh, inventions, a particular resource which the society valued and therefore the, um, the obvious or organic way in which the law could develop was to uh, apply trespass-like rules by analogy to intangible property. So, um, as such, then, these two sets of rules going in different directions would historically probably make sense. But maybe you're um, so you, you are arguing that now it doesn't make that much sense. But we are still stuck with the idea that we still have this property like 
rules that are to be applied to uh, copyright and patent, um, whereas negligence rules will have to then uh, overlay on top of that. So I, I know you have addressed this in, in your book, but I would like to hear it in your own uh, words, how you um, address those specific arguments which, uh, uh, which appear to be quite contentious and quite uh, omnipresent in the literature, why we can't have negligence rules in property style um, regulation. Well, uh, um, I, I take the point that it is actually quite controversial in the literature, but I don't understand, well, I do understand, but I, I don't necessarily agree that it should be controversial. All we need to ask is what's, what is a better regime? What is a normatively better regime? What is a regime which is more efficient? What is the regime which is more fair? It doesn't really matter where, how we protect tangible property. You're right that we can accidentally infringe the rights in tangible property as well. Many of the listeners, even if they're not lawyers, will have seen signs that say no trespassing on on farmland and plots of land, or uh, you know, trespassers will be shot, and and the like. Um, that's a that's a version of extremely strict liability, I should say. Um, so in that respect, intellectual property, the current system of intellectual property is 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 quite similar to to protection of, of, of property, of tangible property rights. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, isn't intangible property more like land and where we protect things by strict liability rather than through negligence? But I don't see why. I think all that matters is what sort of liability regime in intellectual property is efficient and fair. And if we decide that, you know what, negligence is more efficient and negligence is fair, then we ought to adopt a negligence rule. At least that's how I see it. <laughs> Borna, do you agree? Um, yeah, the, my, my, um, my question was also in relation to the specific uh, uh, explanation that you have given, um, saying that, um, uh, that we have negligence liability also in relation to tangible property. So, for example, if, if a car was uh, run over on a highway, then um, there is much more likely to be a negligence liability. So we don't take away from the fact that car, a car continues to be a uh, tangible property. Um, and, and therefore, why, why should negligence liability uh, make the argument any less strong for um, tangible property being protected that way? And if we bring in negligence um, liability into copyright, why would it take away from the fact that copyright is a property right as well? I think it is a persuasive uh, argument when you put it that way. Um, but I think where the problem might arise is in saying that uh, it, it's not so much about overlaying negligence liability on top of some other liability, which is a problem. It is taking away strict liability altogether from copyright, which might be seen as a problem. Um, yet, I mean, in, in relation to a car, no one really denies the fact that there will be a liability as far as the tangible property itself is concerned. You, you could have a, a tort of conversion, you could have tort of trespass to goods, you could have theft, all sorts of things could happen with the car and therefore the actual 
idea of a car as being a tangible property will not be uh, diluted. But if in relation to copyright, if we only had negligence style liability, and if we said no to strict liability altogether, then that might be seen as some, um, by some scholars as being uh, something that would dilute the idea of property that attaches to copyright. I think that's where um, the debate might lie. Well, I could understand that, but I guess the, the fundamental point is I don't see what value is at stake there. You know, I want to live in a world where we use resources efficiently and we treat people fairly. Those things matter to me. Those are serious values. Um, and so those are my overriding concerns. To the extent that that it dilutes the property nature, or I think that's entirely justifiable if it results in a more efficient, more fair legal regime. Um, taking up from that point, uh, Patrick, where, where um, we said we, we would like to say no to strict liability and we want to introduce negligence liability, I, I want to uh, segue that into a more sort of uh, uh, lawyer-like argument. I, I don't want to put it uh, in too technical terms, but really what, what I want to quiz you about is... Um, the burden of proof, who bears the burden of proof if we were to go down this route of negligence liability for copyright infringement. Now, burden of proof in simple terms is who has to prove what. So uh, obviously, in all common law countries, we have adversarial system of uh, uh, litigation, which essentially means that one person goes to the court, proves the claim, and, and then that will be the burden that the claimant has to discharge. And then the uh, ball is in the court of the defendant to prove the opposite of it, either to disprove it or come up with a case of the defendant's own. So the, the, the judge will, will settle this uh, adversarial proceeding based on how much each person has proved. Um, so in that context, so this question will be addressed to something that's possibly a lot more practitioner-like question. So if we were to adopt negligence style liability for copyright infringement, um, with an example, can we just figure out who proves what um, in, in a court of law? Now, if, if it is uh, the intellectual property owner who goes to the court, like say, let, let's say Ed Sheeran's of the world, they first go to the court saying, uh, my copyright has been, uh, sorry, it wasn't Ed Sheeran who went to the court. I'm in shock. No, 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 it was, it, sorry, it, it was Ed Sheeran because he actually went for declaration. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, declaration. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, it, it, well, well let, let, let's let's just put it this way. If, if it is a copyright owner who goes to the court and says, my copyright is infringed by somebody copying my work, um, then in a negligence style liability, what exactly it is that the copyright owner needs to prove? Well, the copyright owner would not need, in my mind, to prove anything other than they already do. It's more the burden is on the, the defendant. That's what changes. Uh, so the copyright owner would prove uh, their uh, copying 
whether it's subconscious copying or not, uh, and, and substantial part. And if so, there's uh, in the, my proposal, well, the, there would be a prima facie, um, uh, sorry, a, a, a rebuttable presumption that there has been an infringement of, of copyright here. But as I said, that's rebuttable. Well, it would be up to the defendant, and if they want to go down this route, to prove two things to a civil standard. One, that this was an accidental infringement rather than an intentional one. And two, that they it performed all reasonable care to prevent the copying, prevent the infringement that you could expect in the circumstances. So the burden would be very much on the defendant um, to to disprove, um, uh, to, to rebut the presumption that this is a copyright infringement. And now for lawyers listening, you'll know that's slightly different to negligence, where the burden is usually on the, uh, the one bringing the case. You know, so if you, if you get involved in a, a fender bender and you sue someone, uh, if you're the one suing, saying, give me money, you have to prove that the other guy or the other person was negligent. Um, so this is a, a reversal of the, the, the standard that you would get in your run-of-the-mill negligence case. But it does feel more it, it fitting to intellectual property and is also a far less... Uh, it, it, it's, it's a proposal that is easier to fit into our existing system. Um, yeah, so that, that was going to be my next question, uh, Patrick, which was um, if, if we are talking about introducing negligence into copyright infringement, um, are you saying that the burden should be on the defendant because it leads to least amount of law reform? Is it, is it much more of an expedient argument or do you see a level of fairness in in that argument as well is is there much much more of you know in in specific relation to distributing the burden do you see the defendant bearing the burden of proving to be uh where the fairness of this whole system will lie or do you think it's just that much more expedient without anything more for the defendant to bear the burden well, this is primarily expediency. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a background fairness point, which is a negligence regime is more fair in the first place. You know, so moving from a strict liability to a, a negligence liability regime is a fairer or, or, uh, way of treating defendants who accidentally infringe intellectual property rights. It's, but this precise point of where the burden lies is a matter of expediency mm. for two reasons. One, the defendant is likely to have better information. It, it, it's likely that the user, the, you know, if Ed Sheeran is proving that they tried to, they, they took all reasonable care, or Ed Sheeran is more likely to have that information uh, to hand. And the second point is one of just limiting radical shocks to the intellectual property system. Um, that this is a a, a, a way to integrate a, a reasonable care standard into copyright law, into the law, without completely rewriting the doctrine on infringement law that already exists. So for those two reasons, it's more expedient than the, than the general allocation of burden of proof in a, in a negligence case. 
So essentially what we are saying here is that um, if I were to take the um, specific matter of Section 16 of the Copyright Designs and Patents Act, um, where it says copyright in a work is infringed by persons who, by a person who without the license of the copyright owner does or authorizes to do any of the acts restricted by copyright. So here, nothing will change as far as this provision is concerned. We are not inserting into this um, without the license of the copyright owner negligently or intentionally does or authorizes the doing of restricted act. We are not reading that into this um, provision, are we? Well, we're not, although if we, if, if, uh, if there is the will and ability to actually change the CDPA, great, that's my, yeah. that's the first choice. That's the best solution. Um, it, I've been in, in the book, uh, I'm quite uh, a broad church about how to include, how to incorporate a negligence regime. The reality is that different jurisdictions, um, uh, different, there's different ways to, to introduce a negligence regime given, given the existing laws they have in place. So we need to be a, a little bit, uh, 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 what's the term, a little bit Catholic about the, about the situation. And, um, and I present a number of different ways that one could, a, law, a, law, um, a legislator could introduce a negligence regime. If Parliament wishes to update the CDPA, then I'd be the first person to say, well, let's adopt, let's amend this section. But if they don't, or if they do not in, in the, in the uh, near future, then there are uh, other judicial ways of including a negligence regime. So if by way of law reform, we were to introduce negligent liability into the statute, then would the burden of proof rest with the um, continue to rest with the defendant or will it will it be um will it be on the copyright owner the reason why i'm asking this is what is the nature of the claim that a copyright owner brings to the court is he claiming that my copyright has been infringed by the negligence of the defendant is that what he's saying or is he just saying my copyright is infringed full stop and now it's up to the defendant so is this going to change with or without law reform um, in, in these two different scenarios? Whether the, 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 the Section 16 remains the same, what is the case he's presenting? If the section, section 16 changes to incorporating expressly negligent liability, is it going to change? It, it's the latter of those two options. It, it, it's still, I, I, for, for expediency reasons, I, I recommend that the, the plaintiff does not need the claimant does not need to say this person has negligently infringed my 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 right. Simply the, their their job in this in this uh, in the litigation is to show he infringed uh, or they infringed the the right. They they have used the patented invention. They've copied a substantial part of of the work. That shouldn't change. The small bit which should change is that the defendant ought to have that opportunity to say, yes, I did, but it was an accident and I took all reasonable care to prevent that accident. Therefore, or we, I ought to rebut that presumption that I've infringed. That, that's the bit that changes. And that should be the case regardless of whether we, we um, do this legislatively, legislatively or through a common law method. 
Um, you also talk about the fair use doctrine um, incorporating negligence. Now, um, yeah, I will leave it to you to describe what fair use is for our listeners, because I'm not well versed in US law. Um, and also, if you could tell us how you would like negligence to be woven into the idea of fair use. Yeah, that's a great point, because I, I rather obliquely said different countries have different copyright laws, different intellectual property laws, and the right way to introduce a negligence regime depends on the jurisdiction you're in. So talking about um, the, the, the infringement uh, analysis, what, what we've been talking about so far, I've been thinking primarily in UK terms. Now let's think about the US. So the US, as many will know, has a, a, this famous doctrine of fair use. So if you have copied someone else's work and you've copied a large, you know, a significant chunk of their work, you might have infringed their copyright. It, it, you have, as the, the person using that work, you can say, judge, I know I copied the work, but this was a fair use of their work, and therefore I ought not to be liable. What I did was a, a fair use. And what counts as a fair use is famously hard to pin down. Now, in the context of US law, the easiest way to incorporate a negligence principle is in the fair use analysis. So that would be a recommendation primarily for US law rather than the UK law. But the central point is still very similar. Or, or you're sued for copyright infringement, you're a, you're a musician who's incorporated a bit of work, a documentary filmmaker, that you're sued, they show that you have used the, the protected work, you argue it's fair use. It was the, the argument, and uh, I suggest in the book, and the co-author and I suggested some years ago, is that what the court ought to do there is kind of a two-stage analysis. First, they start, they do their normal fair use test, the stuff they already do. They look at what the defendant did and go, well, was that fair? If the answer is yes, well, okay, the defendant's off the hook. What he did was fair. They, that's the end of the matter. It only changes if the court decides, you know what, that wasn't a fair use. That, that, or at least that wasn't fair under our normal doctrinal law. Then I recommend it changes. Then there should be a second step, which is the defendant, uh, the, the court ought to go, well, was this an accidental infringement? And if so, did the defendant take reasonable care to prevent that infringement? So that, that standard is exactly the same as the standard we'd be applying in, in the UK law. It's just where in the doctrine it appears. Uh, in the UK law, I, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd put that in the, 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 what we call the prima facie case, whereas in US law, this would be uh, better incorporated within the, the defenses stage of the litigation in the fair use analysis. And again, there's an expediency to that. Uh, this really depends on what kind of legal regime is, is in place in the first place. Yeah, um, Patrick, thanks a lot. Now, um, I have uh, a specific question on um, 
non-accident cases. You say in your book that non-accident cases should remain the same, and it's only for accident cases that we want negligence to be introduced. Mm-hmm. Now, is it is there a bright line between accident and non-accident cases? How do we know uh, right up front? And does the person taking the claim of infringement to the court need to know whether it's an accident or a non-accident case? Who needs to know at what point does it become clear and at what point this fleshes out into the litigation? Can can you walk us through that? Well, there's not a bright line between an intentional and accidental infringement, just as there's not really a bright line between intentional physical and accidental physical harms. Mm. The courts do need to take a pragmatic response to that. Now, although there's not a bright line, that does not mean there is no guidance to that. What we need to consider is the position the defendant was in prior to the infringement, prior to the copying, prior to everything. The defendant will have a plan, a course of action they're planning to undertake. If, you'd, if a reasonable person in that context would say, yeah, this is, probably, this is probably going to commit a copyright infringement. That's an intentional infringement. They knew in advance that this is, prob- this is very likely to infringe a copyright. Um, a probability of you know, approaching one, right? Now compare that to an alternative situation. That prior to doing the copying, the, the, the defendant goes, you know what, there, I might infringe copyright here. I'm not sure. It's possible that if I publish this song or if I publish this documentary, I might end up infringing copyright. They don't know for certainty. The, the probability is not closer to one. It's far lower than that. Now we're in the territory of accidents. It's that probabilistic relationship which defines an accident. And the point is that they can do things to reduce the probability of an accident. They can go out and they can start searching for the copyright owner. They can start trying to uh, find who owns the copyright if it is owned and then license it. So they can bring that probability down. But once we're in that stage of probabilistic reasoning, then we are, uh, that, that is what we understand as an accidental infringement. So there, those are the differences. That's the difference between accidental and intentional. There isn't a bright line between those two. And that is a very much a judicial decision to draw pragmatic lines. And it's the same in, in, in most areas of civil law. What's the difference between an accidental harm and battery, for example? So once the court decides that it's an accidental case, that's when the um, burden shifts to the defendant to say that this accident was caused despite all reasonable care that I have taken and therefore I should not be held liable. Right, entirely, exactly. That's the point at which it shifts. And that's where the defendant has to say, look, look, I, I took all reasonable care. I looked out for a copyright information. I went on various websites. I inspected the product. For, for any ownership information. I made public appeals for people to come forward and identify themselves as an author. Or, or That is where they start to say, look, you couldn't have expected any more of me, Judge. Um, coming to the very last part of your book, Patrick, um, 
you know, reading that part made me realize that so much of what's happened with um, copyright and patent laws and looking at the history and looking at what we have in, in terms of legislation today is historical uh, accident. You know, I, I use it in a different sense than you have used it in, in the title of the book. Um, essentially, it seems to me that the division between property and tort, what should be regulated by tort, what should be regulated by property, this, the, this sort of normative approaches that we have uh, applied to different areas of law is entirely artificial, driven by history, and driven by incidents that actually don't have anything to do with um, the, the core values that we have, in uh, the core values that we want to protect for uh, the, the better of the society. Um, so I think the, the more that we have awareness of that, the, the more open-minded we will be in approaching the liability systems, um, in, in, in having that sort of vision of what we want to achieve and have the, the right kind of approach um, to get us there. Um, so I, I found the last, uh, the, the conclusion to be, um, you know, it, it just brought together very nicely the different aspects that you had been arguing in, in your uh, uh, in the previous chapters in your book. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think you are right. I, I wouldn't say the divisions are are, are entirely uh, artificial. Um, you know, we have a body of rules in common law called property law and a body of rules called tort law, and, and that makes sense. Um, but I think we put too much weight on that at times. I think that's the big key, the key issue. And it, it's it, at times we, we say, this is property, this is not tort law, this is tort law, this is not property. It, that's just a bit, that's reading too much into what is a very pragmatic and useful scheme, but just it, it reads too much into it. Sometimes we have to be prepared to change uh, categorizations when that leads to better real-world results. Thank you, Patrick. That was really an illuminating discussion. And uh, I have uh, uh, no other questions, but just a point that I very highly recommend uh, Patrick's book. It, it, is, um, it is innovative in itself. The arguments are innovative and uh, bold, very clearly expressed. Um, and it was a huge learning experience for me as well. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Purna. I, I, I'm, I'm really touched to hear that you enjoyed the book. Well, thank you both hugely for what has been a very enjoyable discussion. Uh, it's nice to be able to it's nice to be able to sit back and just listen uh, every so often to uh, a really uh, fascinating, really high-level legal discussion, but one framed in terms that even I can understand. Um, so I'm very grateful to you, and I, I, I'm sure our listeners are uh, as well. Um, so the book IP Accidents by uh, Patrick Gould is available now at Cambridge University Press, stocked at all your uh, usual reputable local stockists of excellent academic material. Um, and uh, yes, wholehearted endorsements uh, from the podcast. Uh, that's it from us for this time. My thanks again to uh, Dr. Patrick Gould and Dr. Purna Mysore. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.